talk to the artist. Well, hey, everybody, it's Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And in the newsletter that I put out weekly before my show, I said we were going to talk today about birds and guns. So I know that maybe doesn't sound like the most treacherous subjects, but, um, you know, guys, think about it. The holiday cards that you put out, your Christmas cards, whatever, what do they have on them, many of them? Birds. They have cardinals, they have little chickadees, they have robins, robins, all kinds of birds. And um, we care about our birds. I care about our birds. I I was just talking with our guest, Kaz Taylor, Taylor, who is an ecology professor at Tulane University. And I've got Kaz in here for more than one reason, but uh, we'll get to that in a minute. But um, I, I, I was talking about the fact that it, uh, it, we really we care about our birds. We have a lot of birds in our city because we're a very green city. Even though we lost, I, I still can't get over the numbers that I hear about how many bir- uh, trees we lost after the storm. That's kind of frightening. That must have had an effect, I'm sure, on our bird population. I would think so, although it's, it's probably a temporary effect. They probably the, the birds probably come back. From that, we have a good diversity of birds in, in New Orleans. For sure. Yeah. So, and and I have kind of a, a big green area around my house. That's actually why I bought it. There were other houses that had other things to offer, but I wanted that green for my doggies, <laughs> for me. Um, so, I, I worry about the birds. And then when you read these stories about the decline in populations, whether it's of Bugs, which I don't love, but which I know are important, or frogs, which are also important, bees, and and birds in particular. They're so beautiful, and we love them. It just horrifies me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, can we catch a break here again? some good news? But Kaz has been studying bird populations and what's going on with them. And in particular, she has been studying lately, the wood thrush. Yeah. Now, the wood thrush, guys, Google it. You know, it's got brown brown feathers on top. It's got kind of a off-white belly and little brown spots on its belly. And it's kind of the shape of a mockingbird almost. Yeah, it's a, it's a member of the thrush family, like a robin. It's, uh, the American robin is also a member of the thrush family. But the robins, I tend to think Similar. of as, you know, robin redbreast having a big chest. Mm-hmm. And the, thru- the, the thrush is a little more svelte. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Well, t- first of all, tell me about wood thrush. I, I don't know much about them. I see them in my garden on occasion, mm-hmm. and I guess they're passing through. They're mostly passing through here. They do breed here a little bit, but mostly they're breeding a little bit further north. So they breed across the eastern half of the United States and into southern Canada. They're a forest bird. You hear them. They have, they have the most beautiful song. Um, and the, and so they're, they're oh, do they have a song, kind yeah. of like a mockingbird? A very uh, no, they have a thrush song. You'd have to, I'd have to play it. I can't imitate it at all. But <laughs> okay. they have a, a really gorgeous, really lovely song. So they're very easy to to, to detect because oh. they have a song. 
Oh, actually, that's very interesting because there's been a, a new songbird in my yard the past couple of years that I didn't know what it was because I can't see him, mm-hmm. he, he or her. Um, it, it tends to be up higher in the trees, and I just don't uh, haven't been able to catch a, a, an absolute sighting. So I know, okay, that's linked to that song, which is another thing I want to talk about before we're finished because I want to say, how do I do a better job of linking bird and song? But anyway, back to the wood thrush. Yeah, so the wood thrush, they breed in in North America, and then they migrate in the winter down. They come probably down through New Orleans, and and they end up in Central America, so in the countries starting from southern Mexico going all the way down through... Panama, Guatemala. not not quite as far down as Panama. Costa Rica, but Honduras, primarily. Costa Rica, Honduras, mm-hmm. Nicaragua, um, El Salvador, and, and Guatemala, Belize, and southern Mexico is probably mm-hmm. I probably missed something in there, but they're in that whole Central American region. Um, That's where a, a lot of birds and a wind lot of up. Our mig- winter, a lot right? of our migratory birds end up down there. So they're spending their their, their summers breeding in this big area in eastern, the eastern forests, eastern uh, North American forests, and then they're funneling down into this much smaller area. It's about ten times. It's about a tenth of the forest area in the winter. And, um, and uh, so a tenth of the forest area in the winter in Central America. In Central America than there uh-huh. is in their, in their breeding range. So it's, it's not funny. And, and we tend to think of Central America as so green. Right. Yeah, but it's actually more limited than we think. Much more limited than we think, yes. And so the wood thrush are, are funneling down there in the winter, and we have this amazing resource in North America where citizen scientists, people, go, volunteers, go out every to, to different places, and they do what's called a breeding bird survey. So they walk around, or not walk, they drive around a 50-kilometer route. They stop every one kilometer, and they listen and watch for birds for a fixed amount of time. It's called a point count. And by doing these point counts in different places year after year, we can get a picture of what's going on with different, with all the different breeding s- species, including wood thrush. And this breeding bird survey was started by Chandler Robbins in the mid-1960s, so it's been going for 50 years now. And so we have a really good idea in the breeding range of what's happening to different species. And the wood thrush has been pretty much steadily declining overall for decades, since, since the early 70s at least. Like, what, what, like how much? What percentages? The percentage doesn't sound very big when you say it. It's about 2% per year. But when you add that up, 2%, 2%, 2%, it's an exponential drop in the, in the, in the total mm-hmm. amount. So it's declined, I think it's something like 50% over four decades or something like that. 50%, wow. It's, a big, it's still a very common bird. We still, there's still millions, literally millions of, of wood thrush around. It's still a common bird, so it's, it's not too late, but it's definitely declining. And the reasons for this have been sort of mysterious. You know, we, we know that it's very sensitive. The, the species is very sensitive to forest fragmentation in the breeding range. So when you fragment the forest into small patches, the nests tend to get... Um, preyed upon more by, by Okay, raccoons. I don't understand that. Break that down. Yeah, so when the patches are very small, if a, if a bird is nesting in a very small forest patch compared to a big contiguous, continuous forest, then the, um, the they, those nests tend to get found more easily by raccoons or crows or jays, and those, those animals will eat, or bears even, they will eat the, the eggs in the nests. And also they get found more easily by other birds, that, like cowbirds, that lay their eggs in other species' nests. And so they, they, it tends to be bad. Squatters. 
Yeah. <laughs> they are. And they're doing fine. Those cowbirds are not, are not declining. Hmm, so Interesting. So the... Um, so we so for a long time it was thought that this fragmentation of the forest in the breeding range in North America was what's causing these declines, um, but what I did in the, in this recent paper is I looked at the declines and I found that even in the places where it's not fragmented at all, places like Maine up in the north where the forest is still pretty intact up there, we still we see the biggest declines actually in those kinds of places, and it's because the the wood thrush is actually limited by the habitat and the declines are being caused by loss of habitat in the winter or something that's happening in the non something that's happening in the non breeding season in Central America. And not in the central uh, in the non breeding uh, area in Central America, but in the it is breeding area. No, it's not in the it's not the wood thrushes yeah, it's the loss of habitat in Central America that I believe is causing the decline in wood thrush. Okay. So why? Well, there's a lot of deforestation down there. There's a lot of conversion of land to, to coffee farms, to, to uh, agriculture of various kinds. Do we have to stop chain. drinking coffee? No. No, we <laughs> just have to drink. The, there's the ways of growing coffee where they can integrate the coffee farms with, um, with forest and protect the forest, the integrated open canopy model. And there's ways of growing coffee where you don't grow it in open sun, but you grow it in a shade, so you're growing it sort of inside the forest, a shade-grown coffee. Those ways are much, those ways in which, there are ways in which you can grow coffee and still have habitat that's good for the birds. So basically what you're saying is that a, a key solution to the issue of the decline of the population, probably not just of the wood thrush, but many other species of yep. birds that winter in Central America, is to alter the style of agriculture yep. so that it is less impactful on um, the life of other species. That's right. right. Grow, uh, grow coffee in a more sustainable way. Okay. So... Um, and buy the coffee that's grown in that sustainable Okay, way. so how do we know? How do we know? Yeah, so you can buy, uh, there's various coffees called bird-friendly coffee. Bird-friendly bird friendly coffee. coffee okay, shade, so shade what, do you coffee. know a brand that's bird-friendly? Uh, well, there's one called bird-friendly coffee. No, I have to, I'd have to look Where, up the Do they have that at Whole Foods? Uh, Where? I don't know. You don't know? Actually, so what we need to Google, bird-friendly coffee. Bird coffee. Hopefully it's not Amazon that's selling it because I don't <laughs> buy from Amazon those big monopolists. Whole Foods is I know, isn't that awful? Well, you know what? I actually boycotted Whole Food for years because they, when they left Esplanade, which was where they were founded, mm -hmm. I was really PO'd. Mm -hmm. And then they went uptown and to Metairie and deserted us downtowners. And so I didn't go there until they reopened on, on uh, Broad on Street. Broad, yeah. And I have I been should. a customer since then. But I still go to my Consecos and... And uh, all my little, you know, right. smaller places, too, uh, from time to time for my daily things. Um, so bird-friendly coffee. So some there are some brands that say, I guess if you just go in on a go literally Google bird-friendly coffee. Yeah, so y'all, okay. shade-grown coffee. Huh? Shade-grown coffee. Shade-grown coffee. It's just like free-range. We've all gotten used to the idea shade. of buying, right. um, you know, uh, eggs from uh, free-range chickens and when I was a young girl, I actually spent my summers on a chicken farm mm -hmm. that my uncle owned in South Jersey, and, and I actually roosted the chickens at night in their little, 
I don't know what you call those little outdoor um, kind of places that they would roost. You know, not not big horrible things that you. I, you know, does it kill you to watch those Andrew Sanderson farm commercials where they say they have happy chickens and you look at them and they're in these pens yeah, they cannot with be happy. <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of other thousands of other chickens? Give me a break! Mm-hmm. And they're trying to put, pass that off as oh my, it's just the 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 hypocrisy and the greed of major companies drives me absolutely crazy. So I always try to be solutions-oriented, mm-hmm. not just complain. Okay. And so the obvious and really important solution here is um, that's – I've never heard of this before. Mm-hmm. I never <laughs> heard of bird-friendly coffee yes, uh, or shade-grown shade coffee, and I will coffee. make a point of doing that because I love coffee and I do get yeah. the beans. Who doesn't, yeah. What else is going on? Tell me um, – Give me a, a, a little bit of I, – I, I'm very – first of all, I just want to say the other reason I, I wanted Kaz to come on the show today is that uh, I really wanted to focus on the fact that we have these incredible educational institutions in the city of New Orleans. And I said in my newsletter today, you know, we think of New Orleans in terms of food and music and party and carnival. There's a whole other side to the city that we don't get a lot of exposure to. And I recently signed up to get news releases from Tulane, and I've just – you know, come across amazing things. One of the things, of course, that I came across is that the National Book Prize winner of the moment is at Tulane. And I haven't been able to get her to come on my show. <laughs> and I want – what's her name again? Ward. Jasmine, Jasmine Ward. Jess, Jasmine, Jasmine Ward. Jasmine Ward. And, and, you know, hello, Jasmine. I've got a call out for you. you my audience is interested in you. They want to hear about you. <coughs> so please come on. But I have been trying to track more of the research that's going on in school. What else is going on in your department? Oh, yeah, lots of things in our department. Where um, we, we, we tend to focus to some extent on tropical systems. So we have people working in the rainforest in Panama, working on uh, different plant species and, and how the rainforests are, are, um, are being changed, you know, and by climate change and by uh, agriculture. Um, and we have other people working on birds in South America. We have some local projects. So in my lab, I'm working on monarch butterflies in New Orleans. So we're looking at how how people planting these these species of milkweed. butterfly plants. Butterfly yeah, I have plants, milkweed yeah. in my garden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're seeing how that affects the monarch butterfly population. And, and no conclusions yet, I'm sure. No, right? we just started this project, but yeah, we're mm-hmm. looking at, at how how the, bird, the butterflies are But you're not going to tell us that we shouldn't attract them, are you? No, I don't think so. Okay. It's too early to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, um, and some of my colleagues are working on mockingbirds in the city. So oh, mockingbirds. I call them the jazz musicians mm-hmm. of the bird world. Yeah, I actually too. once did a um, – <coughs> excuse me. I once did a um, – uh, an audio tape of music from all of the Louisiana, Mississippi River Valley, and I open it with a the singing of a mockingbird mm-hmm. for quite a while. I just let them go on because it, it is so improvisational, or at least it sounds that way. Yeah. Now, that's actually something I'm really curious. Do they have a score that they're playing, that they're singing? Or are they just spontaneously? They have a repertoire that they've learned they do have a repertoire? Songs, but they don't, but I'm not sure that they... Play them in a certain order. They think they're, I think they're, jazz, 
You think they improvise? I think so, but I don't really know a whole lot about it. I'm, I'm, <laughs> but, I'm dying um, to know the answer to that. My colleagues are looking at the issue of lead in New Orleans and oh, whether no. lead in the soil is affecting the market. Back to birds. the bad news. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's getting better, though, I think. There's, there's some, but there's a lot of yeah, lead in I have a lot of lead in the ground in my – in fact, yeah. I lost two dogs to it oh. because they were sanding on the house next door to me, and I, I didn't know about um, – the whole issue of lead on and and yeah. when you sand on a house guys if you sand and you do not drop your tarps over that you are spreading lead all over the place it's yeah. not just falling down to the ground by the house it's going all over a whole it block can be very dangerous if you inhale it it's stuff, yeah. terrible stuff yeah we and tested the soil in our garden too when we first moved here and it's very high so yeah. what did you do Nothing. There's not much you can't can amend it. Well, you can. I mean, yeah. you, you you dig down. It's we a big job, but you have to. Tested my daughter to make sure it wasn't it, her blood levels weren't weren't detected. Once it wasn't detected in her blood, and we um we don't eat. You know, we don't plant carrots. We don't eat the things that come directly out of the ground. We put we plant we plant things in in planters, and we eat fruit. You know, from the trees and stuff. But we don't. Mm. We don't I, eat oh, that actually, actually that's grow an interesting in question like because I have citrus trees all over my yeah, yard now. I think now. the citrus trees are right. We eat, we eat oranges from the trees and stuff. Okay, that's fine. I don't think the lead. It, would it make never it even into occurred the to me to think about that they yeah. might be pulling out lead from the ground. Yeah, I don't think they, they're incorporating it into the fruit, but something that's actually in the ground, like a carrot or a potato or something, would would, would be a bit mm, difficult to get the lead mm-hmm. off it because it's. Mm-hmm. So, are the monarchs increasing in town, or I mean, is there any? We think uh, so. so. Monarchs, um, yeah, we have this population of monarchs that seems to breed all year round. So monarchs are migratory, uh, and everything I study is migratory. And monarchs go down to Mexico in the winter, and then they they move north, and then they're. They breed, and then their offspring go further north, and then their offspring go even further north, and then that final generation goes oh, all the way back. Oh, that how it works? And finds this t- very small area of fir forest in in Mexico, and they find the same fir forest that their great great grandparents used, and nobody really knows exactly how they how they do that. So it's a, it's an amazing migratory system, but what's happening in New Orleans is that they seem to be here year round. So we think that they're they're just they're finding the milkweed here that we're planting and just staying, and they're breeding here. They're breeding late into the winter, maybe even through the winter. It's probably well, a bit cold. Well, just right like now. all these other visitors yeah. who come to New yeah. Orleans yeah, for a weekend, just, and then nobody ever wants to next leave. Next thing you right. know, they're they, they're stuck. <laughs> they're here for life. That's exactly. I sort of right. fall into that category. Yeah. I, I want to go uh, uh, hit on that migration uh, subject for a minute because we have a an art show. Um, at a place called Crevasse 22 River House, which is um, down in St. Bernard Parish uh, in Poitras, mm-hmm. right by the river. And we have a sculpture garden and an art center there. And I, we talk about the environment. So the theme of our art shows is always about the environment one yeah. way or another. And we had a um, show last year, and part of it is continuing, called Living with Climate Change. And we're dealing with the whole sort of design adaptations to yeah. staying in an area that is more threatened. Um, but the show I have up now is called Migration, mm-hmm. and um, we are showing all kinds of everything from really traditional, exquisitely carved um, waterfowl birds, wood, wooden, mm-hmm. you know, based on the idea of the decoy, but yeah. no longer a decoy, yeah. uh, to very contemporary art, and and, uh, and 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 then we have 
a, a series of boats. So through the metaphors of boats and birds, we're talking about migration because mm-hmm. migration is is, is, a, is is a fact of life that's been happening since we came out of the water, right? <laughs> yeah. But um, and, and, and sometimes it seems like it's an absolutely natural thing. We even migrate ourselves to our, you know, if we have a little place in the woods someplace, we mm-hmm. want to go there. We want, we kind of want to move around, don't we? Yeah, we do. All yeah. our species. Yeah. What's good and what's not so good about migration? That's an well, awfully big for, open-ended question. but For animals that go really long distances, it's a very dangerous thing to do. So it's, it can, they can die trying to cross the Gulf of Mexico, for instance, coming from... South America, Central South America, so it can be, it can be kind of dangerous. Um, what's is good? there is there a percentage of the flocks that fly that don't make it? Yeah, there's definitely a percentage of the of the birds of birds that don't make it, and and butterflies and other migratory animals too. Yeah, the, so the idea of the the, the migration but, is very delicate dangerous. little butterfly going across the Gulf of Mexico. Oh, so, my some God. studies have estimated that about 85 percent of mortality in a, in a migratory in one particular migratory bird species was due to what happened during migration, both the spring and the fall mm. migration. So it can be a really big source treacherous. of mortality. Yeah, mm-hmm. treacherous. What's good about it is that you get to uh, escape from these small areas where you're competing with the resident birds. For instance, in Central America, there's lots of beautiful resident forest birds that, that stay there all year round, and the migrants get to escape from competition with them and escape from predators and sometimes from disease, mm-hmm. and they get to exploit these enormous resources that, that are here are in the summer, or the are in the north in the summer, but, mm-hmm. the, but they're not really available in the winter. But now, they, don't I, have to, they don't have to live through the winter, which is also a dangerous... So, so when I was planning this show about migration, I wanted to find out just a little bit about what was going on with bird populations in the area, and I talked to a guy from UNO whose name I'm not going to be able to call right now, and actually I had him on the radio show um, not too long ago, and he told me that um, there's a number of birds that are shorebirds who, who um, like, however, fresh water in the marshes mm-hmm. for whom this, the increasing salinity resulting from the rising of the oceans and all the other factors that go into um, uh, you know, coastal erosion, um, they're having to move further up. They're having to migrate. Mm-hmm. And as they move up, they're moving into territory that's not as... Um, uh, good for them, not yeah. as uh, f- uh, filled with opportunities. That has less fresh water because yeah. they just, you know, it's not so much marshy. So migration sometimes can be a very unfavorable yes, outcome. It so can be, it can be, yeah, it's it can be dangerous, but it's a it's a response to try and exploit, you know, a better situation somewhere else, and so animals do it a, a lot. I mean, migration just fascinates me. The long-distance migration, you know, I, I've traveled in South America. I see these little tiny sandpipers is one of the species I study, and they're tiny, there's huge flocks of them. They're these little tiny 20-gram birds, weighs less than an iPhone, you know, <laughs> and, it, and, and uh, they fly from South America, from the north coast of South America, all the way to the Arctic, to, to you know, up into so the, the uh, Why are the they, Arctic. what do they want to do in the Arctic? There's a lot of flies in the Arctic in the summer. A lot of flies? flies a lot of things to eat, a lot of insects. Oh, so when, when, when things melt, there's just this explosion yeah, of so insects. Yeah, they have such a short season that they get, but, there's a, but it's a really big boom. So, so lots of shorebirds, of the, the sandpipers and those kinds of birds, they fly all the way from South America to the Arctic. And they find their way back, some of them, to 
the same place that they nested, the same scrape in the ground where they laid their eggs last year. You're kidding. It's the exact same place. And oh, my. <laughs> and I see these little birds in these little tiny birds. I think, how do you do that? How do you get How do they do that? <laughs> we, we don't, don't know. know. We don't know. Yeah. They have some kind of inner... Compass. They have various kinds of navigation. They have a better sense of direction than we do they have here a in much New Orleans, sense right? Of, yeah. We don't know where, where the hell north, south, That's east, right, and west right. is. We've got to go towards the lake, away from the lake, towards the river, away from the river, <laughs> uptown, downtown. Yeah. I'm, in, I'm in awe of their sense of direction, for sure. For <laughs> is that right? <laughs> You're, um, I, I have a better sense of direction than my husband. Yes, I do, dear. <laughs> but um, uh, it, it is it's truly astounding. What's what's a we're just about out of time. So I am I out of time? Oh, okay. I thought I thought I, I misread what you said. Um, I, 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 uh, what what is what is um, a kind of uh, um, observation um, about migration that is something that we really don't know, but that is intriguing and that you can say at this time. Um, that's a kind of such that's a, a very open wide, uh, yeah, abstract question. But I think that there's a lot we know. I don't know enough to ans- yeah. ask a more pointed question. Is the problem? Go ahead. There's a lot we know, but what is often surprising to people is how little we know. So there are some species of birds where we don't even really know where they spend the winter. Right? The, the birds that we see commonly here, we're not really still sure. Like in what? some cases, well. Um, I don't know. I don't know the exact species, but we haven't tracked every single species of birds. Mm-hmm. We're getting better at it. There's a lot of new uh, tracking technologies where we can put little tags on birds and figure out where they went. Um, but for the smaller birds, at least, it's quite it's still quite difficult to do. And so there's still a lot of that kind of work to be done. And so I think that's sort of surprising thing that we still know so little about birds. And for something like the wood thrush, which is a very, very well-studied bird in the breeding range, we still know almost nothing about what's happening in the winter, right? We still know, we we can we can build these big studies, these models and, and computer models that show that it's something that's happening in the non-breeding season is causing the declines, but we still don't really know what. We don't know the the basic ecology of how they spend the winter and what causes them to die, um, how habitat loss actually affects the survival. Here's another question I want to ask. So I have a lot of cardinals in my yard mm-hmm. always. For about two years in a row, I had a cardinal woman, a, 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 the female, the female uh, cardinal, who kept bashing up against the windows. Mm-hmm. And and I, I, I thought, and, and the male cardinal was always nearby watching this. And my theory was that she was kind of like Males might fi- male uh, of any species might fight with each other to display their prowess. That she was demonstrating to her male partner her, in a sense, prowess in beating off this girl bird that she thought she was seeing, but who was actually her. It was mm-hmm. her reflection. Right, it was a reflection, yeah. And she drove me nuts. <laughs> I mean, she just was constantly beating up against the window, and I'd. You know, I, I I never did figure out how to put. I know there's ways that you can put a film on your windows. So, but we have yeah. nothing but windows in my yeah. house. It's yeah. like there's no wall. It's yeah. all windows. And um, so far, she was she was there for about two years, and then after that, she was gone. So one of the things I've often tried to figure out is, are Mike, how many cycles, how many times, are are cardinals returning to my garden? 
in their lifespan. And, and, and so uh, when I see a cardinal, let's say, next spring, is that cardinal the same cardinal that was there this spring, or is that a new cardinal? Or, or is that a baby? Are those babies of the cardinals? That, you know, yeah. What's the lifespan of a cardinal, for example? I don't, I don't know. We don't know. I don't know. A big bird like that probably... I would guess it probably lives about 10 years or something like that. That long? Average, yeah. Really? Maybe not so quite So maybe I'm seeing the same bird for about a decade. I would expect if the cardinal is successful, if it, if it breeds, fledges young from that nest, I would expect it would come ba- they would come back. I have no but idea whether anybody in my audience gives a darn about anything I'm talking about, but <laughs> no. I am into birds. I often have that feeling. <laughs> okay. But now I, I, I think we actually, I think we all do love our birds. When you yeah. hear a mockingbird, you look up, mm-hmm. especially if they're kind of a little bit perturbed about you being near their nest and they're about to peck you on the head. Yeah. You, you watch them. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, here's my, here's my question too. So I, I'm not, I'm not going to go out and with binoculars and trudge around in the forest somewhere to, to look, um, be a bird watcher, but I would like to do a better job of knowing what's going on in my own garden, mm-hmm. which is plenty. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have everything from owls and hawks. I do have hawks, mm-hmm. and I usually am working very hard to try to get rid of them with fake owls on my balcony. That doesn't work very well. And then we have a huge hatchery of of yellow-crested night herons oh. out in front of my house, mm-hmm. which which is painful because every spring I am very busy with my neighbors rescuing uh, adolescents mm-hmm. off this off Esplanade Avenue before they get smashed by all the speeding. Every everybody speeds on Esplanade around in, by my house because we're in between traffic lights. So, yeah. um, but uh, there's a lot of birds out there. Mm-hmm. So uh, how can I do a better job of matching up a song, for example? If I hear a new song, I say, "Wow, what's that?" With the bird. Yeah, it. Yeah, you have to just learn it. And I'm not a very good bird song identifier but there are books you can get field guides you can get them on a on a smartphone or on a computer yeah but what are you gonna have to do listen to 50 bird songs before you can pick out no you have to listen to the common ones first so once you can recognize you start with the common ones you start with cardinals mockingbirds you can probably already pick out jays the blue jays and the birds that you hear all the time the birds that you see all the time learn what those sound like and then when you hear something that's not one of those then you can start trying to figure it out but it's not an easy process. It's, it's but I, I thought that really they had these, these um, yeah. things online yeah. where you could play. I, I, was, I thought there was something where I could record it, mm-hmm. play it, there and somebody some could new, identify it. There are some it. new apps out there that, that, that you can but use. But I couldn't um, find it. I looked for that app last year, and I couldn't find it. Merlin. Um, which Merlin? Merlin, I think is from Cornell. Okay. And, they, and they have Here's the important kernel of information, yeah. guys, that I was looking for for uh, this whole half hour. Okay. Merlin. Okay. I'm not certain how well that one works. It's for, it's mostly aimed at common birds, but um, well, probably yeah. a lot of my birds are common. I just don't know it now. However, I'm going to say this: in 1984, when we had the World's Fair, mm-hmm. I was working on the World's Fair. I was director of public relations for it, mm-hmm. and it was a challenge. It was very stressful. There was a bird that visited that year that had a very long, beautiful melody. Mm-hmm. It just it, it and it wasn't quite as, you know, the 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 mockingbird song is kind of all over the place. It really is like a, a jazz trumpet player in New Orleans, mm-hmm. but this song was just very kind of slow and melodious, and you would hear it ext- very very early in the morning. That's mm-hmm. the only time you heard it, and then 
I think we heard it one more year after that, and then never more. Yeah. No idea. Kind of, no, not really. Maybe some kind of sparrow or something. Uh, nah. No. I have all kinds of sparrows in my yard Could all the time. Could be a thrush of some sort. Well, that's kind of, of what thrush, I was wondering. I have to go back and listen to the wood thrush song and see if by any mm -hmm. chance it's a wood thrush. But it's a very long melody. It's right. a beautiful, a beautiful melody. Yeah, I'm not sure what that could be. Have to think about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, how about some of your your other uh, folks in your department and and um, what you're up to? Um, what are we all up to? Yes. Uh, well, so, yeah, we, we're studying a lot of tropical stuff. We're studying a bunch of, we have a number of bird people. One of our faculty sets up a banding station in Honey Island Swamp every year, um, and uh, every every summer, and, and catches the birds there, and she started right up. How does she catch them? We put up these nets that are called mist nets. They look a little bit like volleyball nets, but they're very, very fine mesh, mm -hmm. so the birds can't really see them, especially in the forest, in the sort of more mm -hmm. you know, dappled light of the forest, and the birds get caught in them, and then you, you can extract them very easily. And, um, and so, yeah, so she's studying uh, what's happened to the bird communities in Honey Island Swamp, the state of Mississippi. How are we doing in the Honey Island Swamp? Yeah, well, Swamp? so she started right after... Um, uh, Katrina, Katrina. Mm -hmm. and so, well, right before Katrina, really. It was the oh. summer before Katrina, uh -huh. so she had one year of data before Katrina, and then everything changed after Katrina because the habitat she was working in got, got really um, changed. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the whole bird community changed, and then and then it slowly sort of recovered back to what it, what it, did it was. Come back. It came back, actually, actually, actually not all that slowly. Within about two or three years, I think it came back to, to what it was before. Interesting. Really interesting. Well, guys, I, I, I hope you bore with um, my little bird obsession, but um, I do love our birds. We actually capture – we do. We have a big bird cage in the foyer of my house so that when we capture the yellow-crested um, heron uh, um, adolescents, basically, they've flown out or they've been mm -hmm. kicked out. I know, I know they get kicked out. That's the other thing. It, it ain't such a sweet thing out there necessarily. Their lives are not – easy and and their brothers and sisters tend to push them out of the nest i've learned that which i was not happy to hear about the good reason to care about birds is that if the birds aren't doing well then it's a good it's an in, they're a good indicator of whether or not we're doing well so it's uh those are our closing words <laughs> okay. thank you so much kaz for thank coming you. my pleasure i really enjoyed it and and, and keep me uh informed and updated and if you do hear about a, a terrific app where I can record the song. I'll look, I know there is one. I'll look up the name of it. I think maybe it's Merlin, but I have to look. I, I would appreciate that. All right. Um, so we're going to turn to a tougher subject, um, and that is guns. And um, John Ritchie is a uh, documentary filmmaker who's uh, been focused on some tough issues, and one of them is loopholes that just shouldn't be there and – we're going to hear from him right now. As My name is John Ritchie. I'm a local uh, documentary filmmaker. Uh, I make documentaries that center around social, social justice issues. Uh, I've done a lot about gun violence and, um, and also um, environmental issues that affect Louisiana. Uh, but I'm here today to talk about my uh, film 91%, which is a documentary about gun policies in the U.S. with a focus on background checks. Let's start off by saying uh, where it's going to be um, – uh, screened yeah. and uh, when, and then we'll come back and repeat that. Yeah, sure. So, 
Ninety-one percent is going to be playing this coming Monday, uh, January. I mean, or sorry, ninety-one <laughs> uh, percent is going to be playing this coming Monday, December eleventh, at seven thirty at Trio, uh, which is a bar um, that's on uh, at thirty-eight thirty-five Tulane Avenue. And so, uh, All right. yeah. So tell tell me about the the film, the um, documentary, and and um, you know what what happens, what the story you're telling in it. And tell me why this is so important to you. Sure. So, so 91%, is, like I said before, is a documentary that's about gun policies in the U.S. with a focus on background checks. Uh, the title of the film comes from a poll that came out of Quinnipiac University back in 2012 that showed that 91% of Americans were for background checks on all gun sales. And so with that overwhelming approval rating, you would think that it would be very easy for Congress just to pass a universal background check, but to, to date... Uh, there continues to be a loophole which allows for guns to be purchased by people that had there um, been a background check in place that they would never have gotten access to a firearm. Um, it, uh, and right now, as far as like because of underreporting and because we don't uh, put resources toward uh, trying to figure out, like as far as uh, uh, what the gun data shows, it's really hard to know how many guns are actually uh, purchased through this this loophole um, that uh, but one thing that we do know is that uh, four out of five guns that are recovered from crime scenes are um, they're originally gotten through this loophole that um, that Congress won't close how does that work exactly so I mean I, I frankly I was under the impression that a lot of violence and not the terrorism type violence mm -hmm. but just these ordinary street violence that people are getting their guns, um, stealing them, getting yeah. them illegally from other people involved in crime who trade in them. Yeah, sure. So, like, as far as uh, there are a lot of guns that are, that are obtained through, um, through theft, you know, out of cars and out of houses. But then also there's guns that are bought in kind of like a black market kind of um, atmosphere. Like, as far as there are people who will uh, obtain guns through um, – you know, they, they might go and uh, get it from a gun from a gun um, a gun show, or they might uh, purchase it from um, an actual gun dealer. And then what they will do is they'll turn around and they'll sell it to people um, who shouldn't get them. Who shouldn't get them? That would not be able to pass a background so, check. So that's why I think the the issue is so difficult because when you think about um, all the different ways illegally that people can get guns mm -hmm. outside of that loophole. How does closing the loophole really help? Well, so, okay, and I want to back up just for a second and explain this part of, of the whole uh, problem. So if you're a person that is a gun dealer, a federally licensed gun dealer, then what you have to do is that when somebody purchases a gun, you have to run a background check on them, which would do a couple of different things. You, you call up um, the FBI and you'd find out, like, first, first of all, whether or not they were old enough to buy a gun, um, whether or not they have any um, – if they're a convicted felon – they have mental issues that would keep them from um, having a gun, and whether or not they're a U.S. citizen. But anybody else that, that's not a federally licensed gun dealer can sell a gun to anybody without doing any of those checks. There's no, and like, as far as, like, so you, you're a person that might be a private gun owner or somebody that might actually be in the business of selling guns, but you just don't have even a federal license to do it. You have less restrictions being somebody that does not register as a federal licensed gun dealer than somebody um, that does. Yeah. So right there you can see that there, there's, a, there's a problem with that. So anyway, um, 
So if you're somebody that wouldn't pass a background check, but you want a gun, and you know that there that there's all these people out there like online, like as far as like on, on sites, like as far as like that sell that where you know people trade firearms, like like a Craigslist kind of. Thing. You know that you can go to these people. You can go on Craigslist and buy guns. Well, not not Craigslist, but you have stuff like um you have you have websites that are devoted to selling guns, like trading and selling guns that are that work similar to uh, to Craigslist, and it will tell you as far as in the description of those guns that um, as far as like when they describe how what guns they have. Will say uh, looking to sell this, no background check necessary. You know, and so, um, so the thing is, is that is that this loophole that exists completely undermines uh, any attempt in order to be able to regulate who gets guns and who doesn't. So if you're somebody that wouldn't pass a background check and you're looking to get a gun, and you um, and uh, you know as far as this loophole, you would you would. What you would do is you'd find somebody that's willing to sell you a gun, and that person that would sell you the gun has no liability if that if that gun ends up being used in a crime because of where the current laws stand. So let me just make sure I understand this. Yeah, sure. So the loophole is essentially that there are people out there who can sell guns who are not federally licensed? Yeah. That's, that's the heart of the loophole. Yeah, basically, so here's the deal is that anybody can sell a gun. Like, you could sell a gun, I could sell a gun. And if you are somebody that doesn't have a federally licensed, a federal license in order to be able to sell a gun, that you have less restrictions you on you. You don't have to keep any records? No records. No, no records, no liability. That gun was found at a crime scene, and the cops come to you and say, hey, you know, like, as far as, like, uh, we found this gun here. And you say, oh, yeah, I sold it to somebody. And they ask, who'd you sell it to? You could say, I, I have no idea. I don't remember who I sold it to. And you, and you would not carry any liability whatsoever. So there's people that have actually made a living, a business, basically saying that they're not, they're, they're not really a gun dealer. But the thing is, they sell thousands of guns to people that they know would not pass a background check, and they do, and that happens across the country all, all the time. Long. Yep. How how many approximately? Do we have any idea approximately how many of those kind of gun dealers there are? essentially unlicensed we don't we don't know so that's that's part of the problem too is that no it, data on them. there's the, yeah the the data is very um the, it's not good uh part of the reason for that is because the nra has gone to great lengths to make sure that there, there's not a whole lot of data but one thing that we do know you would think that they would do the opposite if they want us to leave people alone mm -hmm. as much as possible in gun ownership then you'd think that the nra would want to at least keep it legal where they endorse the concept of gun dealers being regulated. Yeah. Well, but here's the problem with that is that if you're like, so the NRA is basically, it, you know, it touts itself as being this pro Second Amendment, you know, this, this, um, this, you know, American. But really, all they are is marketing for gun companies. Well, the, you know, well, they're lobbyists for the gun manufacturers. And so, you know, so where the problem stands, the reason why they do not want to see any kind of regulations is because the more regulations that there are, the less firearms that will be sold. And that's really, that's, it, that's what it comes, it comes down, down, to. down to. Yeah. What, if anything, have been the most successful strategies for either imposing restrictions or getting at this loophole. In other words, what what can we do? Yeah, well, um, you're asking what's been effective, what's been successful when it comes to um, gun regulations. And, um, the, you know, the truth is, is that on the federal level, 
Um, there has not been a lot of good um, movement as far as on when it comes to gun regulations over the last 20 years. Um, but what you have seen is that on state by state, states there have been some states that have passed really strong, effective gun uh, gun policies, and in fact, have you know, closed the loophole. And then those states where that's been done, you've seen gun violence reduced by more than 50 percent. So, like for instance, California. California used to have the the highest amount of gun violence in the in the country, but back in the, in the late 90s, they actually closed that loophole. And what they what they've seen in the last like in 10 years, like after they closed that loophole, they saw that gun violence was reduced by more than 50 percent. Um, which is, and you, you see that also in New Jersey. You see that in New York. You see that in any any of the states where they do where they've done that. So, so that would certainly uh, be an argument that we can do something and that we should. Sure, absolutely. And so, um, what, what, what would you recommend? Let's go back to Louisiana. Sure. What is the circumstance here? Okay, so if you look at the data um, that does exist, um, so Louisiana has the, is one of two states that has the, the, the Blackest gun laws, like the blackest amount of regulations when it comes to guns, and least, then we also have the most gun violence as far as any other state does. And, you know, I mean, if you live in New Orleans, then you're well aware of the fact that we have more gun violence here than pretty much anywhere else in the country. And you know, as far as like, there's a strong correlation that you can point to that shows that because of the lack of regulations with guns that we have here, that that directly affects how much gun violence we actually have across the state. And if you think about it. In that sense, then it only makes sense that with New Orleans being the biggest city in the state, that, of course, it's going to have a lot of gun violence. So, you know, one of the things that I think about quite a bit, and I've, you know, I've dealt with, um, I made films about, about gun violence on the community level and about what communities can do. But, um, but I think that uh, one of the missing aspects when it comes to dealing with the amount of gun violence that we have here is that you can't just expect the community, a community to turn around amount of gun violence on their own. The thing is that you need policies that actually me that actually meet and mirror the needs of, of, um, of the community. Right now, in Louisiana, we do not have that. So part of the reason why there's so much gun violence here in this, in this city um, is because we don't have strong enough policies that make it to where guns are not are kept out of the hands of people that are going to hurt each other. So at the state legislative level, mm -hmm. um, are there like a couple of key bad guys? who have been out there lobbying on behalf of uh, not having any um, limits and regulations and guidelines on, on gun purchase? And who, who are the heroes and who are the devils? Well, you know, I mean, it's one of the things is as far as, uh, you know, everyone knows that, that we're a very conservative state, you know, and so one of the things... You know, we used not to be so conservative, you know. Oh, yeah. On, on, the, on the southern landscape... Up until the late 70s, mm -hmm. we were one of the more liberal states. Yeah. Well, I mean, but, you know, in the last 20 years, yeah, I mean, that's really, it's, it's definitely, you know, turned around. And so, you know, I, I don't think that there's one person that you can point to that necessarily you say this is the person that's the biggest champion for um, guys. But one thing that you can look at is that the, the strength and the power of the NRA, like as far as like they have a very strong, strong uh, hold here in Louisiana, and it makes it to where it may, where it's, Incredibly difficult to pass any kind of strong legislation. You know, I, I think there was one point uh, when I did a story on gun violence in the state some time ago that um, I was able to 
actually identify the amount of money that certain legislators were getting sure. from the NRA. Yeah. Um, uh, if you can uh, point me at that statistic, I'll see if I can't um, you know, pull I'm not, that up in, 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 uh, when I get ready to do this later. I, I wouldn't be able to t tell you, like, as far as the specific numbers, yeah. you know, but, um, but one thing that, that it's that. very easy to find online, you can find out how much money goes toward um, all types of legislators when it, that the, you know, that the NRA is, is bankrolling, you know, yeah. and, uh, and it's not, it's not a secret. I mean, as far as, you know, uh, they, they basically, they gave Trump several million dollars as far as in his campaign. Sure. And you can see what he's done as far yeah. as like championing their cause. Mm -hmm. So, um, if you're in, in the audience out mm -hmm. there listening to this, um, interview, um, uh, what, what can that individual who's listening do? Because I'm all about, you know, how do we take personal responsibility and get involved in the process? You know, I think that there's a couple things that need to happen. Um, first of all, we need to make, we need to start thinking about this, like, as far as, like, we don't need to start, you know, um, we need to stop, you know, uh, jumping to one side or the other without, like, as far as, like, thinking about what's logical. You know, as far as, like, that, you know, the, the fact that you might be a conservative does not mean that necessarily have to believe that that you in like no gun uh restrictions at all you know and according to the title of the film um most conservatives um most liberals most conservatives most democrats republicans we all agree that, as yeah. as that there needs if to be some kind of gun regulation so it's 91 percent of the people who are being polled who are in favor of it mm -hmm. then um I just, it's, it is phenomenal the way uh, people in, in, in legislative um, offices at all levels, mm -hmm. uh, municipal, state, and federal, can ignore yeah. the realities of what people really do want or not. It, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I think that one of the things, like, you know, if you're, for instance, I, I'm a, um, I mean, I, you know, I'm a, a fairly liberal person, but I'm also a gun owner, you know, and... I, uh, I, but I'll tell you, I'll be one of the first people to tell you that I think there needs to be stronger gun re regulations and policies. And so if you're out there and you're listening right now and you're someone that is a gun owner or somebody that even might be a pro-Second Amendment kind of person, but also at the same time you understand or you believe that our society would benefit um, by having stronger, stronger gun laws, you need to be vocal. You need to make sure that people don't make that false equivocation that, that, being someone that wants stricter gun laws means that you're um, that you're trying to get guns banned because that's just that's a lie that gets perpetrated perpetrated in order to make it to where we're, we're not really discussing the issue whenever we're trying to figure out what to do with the, the amount of gun violence that we see in yeah, our we're society. We're not dealing with the you know? nuances and with the um, uh, the real uh, specific opportunities. Yeah, um, you're, you're, you've got this lined up not only for the screening. Um, Monday night on the 11th of December. At Treos. At uh, Treos at 3835 Tulane Avenue right. at 730. But I understand that you're going to have a number of screenings up in the Northeast. But uh, most interestingly, on January 26th, you have a screening that you're doing in the U.S. Capitol. Tell me what, yeah. who set that up and what do you think you might be able to accomplish with that? Yeah, so uh, there was, you know, we, this film came out last November, and so it's been seen in several places. And uh, one of the places where, where we've done screenings is up in the D.C. area, and there were, there's a representative that's, um, that's from Maryland named Jamie Raskin, and he saw the film, saw the value in the film, um, and has invited us to, to come up and do a screening of 91% at the U.S. Capitol in their theater 
on January 26th. And so, um, yeah, we're going to go up there and we're going to do a screening at the Capitol. Um, and uh, I think the reason that he liked it, uh, Representative Jamie Raskin liked it so much, is that it, um, some people say that it has a nonpartisan um, view as far as like when it comes to this issue of gun violence. We, we, you know, in the film, we actually went to an NRA convention in Nashville in 2015, or yeah, 2015, and uh, and uh, or 2016, and we um, and we interviewed NRA members there. We interviewed 15 NRA members, and out of the 15 that we interviewed, 13, 13 of them were uh, were for uh, background checks on all gun sales. Um, how, how aside from the from um, uh, making sure that the content of the, of your documentary um, uh, came off as not partisan? Yeah but more logical. How did you convey visually your story that would make this something somebody might want to sit through? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that we did in the film, you know, as far as that, we tried to explain as quickly as possible what the, the problem and the dilemma is, but then we, we get out of the politics of it, and we actually, we, um, we go and we interview people that have been um, affected by gun violence as far as all over the country. And these are, um, you know, it's people from all walks of life. It's from people that, um, you know, we interviewed uh, a family in Maine and Utah and Los Angeles, down here in New Orleans. And, um, and what, I think, what I think is this, is that these are people that are, are wonderful people that, that have actually come to have very strong feelings about this, this whole issue based off of something that personally happened to them, you know. And I think that in this current climate that we live in, I think that we're all kind of sick of politics and we, we are, we're very cynical about, about – you know, policies and about what's going on as far as, like, in D.C. Um, but, you know, so it makes it sometimes really hard to actually um, continue to care about issues, you know. And, but I do think that that if we see somebody that we can relate to, somebody that might that you, you could see yourself in or that you might think of as, like, being, like, your neighbor or somebody that you'd be friends with and you see how they've been affected and you're, you, it makes you start to care again. And so I think that those personal stories that, that we were lucky to, to, to capture. Bring out the empathy of yeah, the human, average human being. It's, it's an access point to, to an issue oftentimes that it reminds us why this is so important for us to continue to push for these stronger gun policies. What else are you working on? Um, I've been working on uh, films uh, about the Coastal Master Plan um, with the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities. Um, and we're, tell, me, tell me a little bit more about that. That's kind of my area. Yeah, well, so, like, as far as, like, we, you know, I, I partnered with the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, and um, we we produced a four-part series that was about the Coastal Master Plan, and the idea was to show Native Louisianians, like, that um, that are dealing with the dilemmas um, around the Coastal Master Plan about some of the engineering feats that are being um, applied in order to produce the, the Coastal Master Plan and about what... Um, how it how it affects communities, you know, as far as like like what what are the dilemmas that are attached to this? And I think the idea more than anything else is to is to educate people about. I think that people know that there's a that Louisiana is a coastal issue, but I think that that there's still a lack of understanding of what what has caused it and then what needs to happen in order to be able to solve it. And certainly a lack of uh, appreciation of the immediacy of it, because it sounds like something that, oh, this will affect us 100 years from now, but not now. But the truth of the matter is, 
all of these um, weather events that we've had over the past couple of years that have been devastating to uh, one community after another are an expression of climate change and um, we have to deal with this in the present tense and not just the future. Sure, sure. You know, um, you know, regardless of how you feel about, like, as far as, like, the issue of climate change, you know, like, that's something that definitely has affected um, the coast of Louisiana. But, you know, we have something that's even, like, twofold when it comes to that because we're dealing, you know, a lot of the reason that we're dealing with subsidence and erosion here is the way that we've kind of dealt with the Mississippi River. And about, the levees that yeah, can silt out of the marshes and not to mention land subsidence caused by oil extraction, yeah. not to mention um, the pipelines that have uh, uh, introduced too much salinity yeah. into the marshes, all of those factors. Yeah, exactly. Like as far as like, you know, this is a, this is a man-made problem. You know, as far as like we engineered, we engineered our way into this 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 dilemma, and I, what I think we're doing now, the, like the you know the state and the you know the Coastal Protection Restor Restoration Authority is trying to do is we're trying to engineer our way back out of this. So so how is how are, is this series available? How pe how can people see this? Uh, you, well, we're going to start doing screenings in June. With it, we just finished it up. Okay. So so yeah. keep us in mind because. Um, We'd like to maybe do those screenings at the Crevasse 22 River House sure. where our whole focus is on environmental exhibitions. And, and yeah, yeah, no, we'd love to do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, okay, this is, um, you know, you you stay on it. Yeah. Stay on yeah. it. It's, it's, it's great that you do what you do, and we should be appreciative, and we should support you, and we need to come out for this screening this Monday night at Treos at 3835 Tulane Avenue at 7.30. And um, it would be interesting to see what kind of news coverage you get for the screening in the Capitol. Yeah. Can I do one, like, personal appeal for the screening on Monday night? Sure. Okay. So if you're listening right now and you're um, thinking about coming to this screening that we're doing of 91% at Treos on next Monday night, January 11th. Um, December 11th. Oh, you know what? You got me again. Okay, December 11th. Sorry. But anyway, if you're thinking about coming out for the screening of 91% we're doing at Treos, and if you're a person that, that, that is on the fence, you don't really know how you feel about gun policies, or if you're not sure whether or not you even agree with this, I really beg you to come out and to see this film because I think that it might open your eyes. Uh, you know, the, the film's called 91% because there is this overwhelming, you know, um, uh, need. Overwhelming, people believe in this, in this, this uh, background check on all gun sales. And so I, I believe that as far as that, that a lot of people – think that they're more divided on this issue than they really are. And, you know, I, you know, I think that also another thing is that they use fear tactics in order to be able to, to get people to, to, to not really talk about the issue at hand. You know, the thing is that we can, we can still own guns but be better about, uh, about how we regulate them. And so I really hope that, um, that you'll come out and you'll see this film. So, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, that's it, folks, for today, and I just want to encourage you to definitely get around town and see all the fantastic art that's up as part of the P4 um, festival that's in town. There's just art everywhere, and all the galleries and, and um, all the art sites have things going on. Uh, get down to the Provost um, 22 River House in St. Bernard. Get up to the third floor of the Myrtle Banks building above the public market. Um, get over there to the art house on the levee and, um, and all the other great sites. 
Y'all have a great week, and I'll be with you next time on June 8th for some conversations.